0: Hello, and welcome to the Notacast podcast, the podcast that usually goes through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week, but not here. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. My co-host, Jeff, better known as Brendan Beefish, is taking a couple months off the podcast for work. Soon as he's back, which is going to be in the next week or two, we're going to be resuming the weekly Song of Ice and Fire podcast with A Storm of Swords. In the meantime, I've been doing episodes with a rotating series of guest hosts on a variety of topics, as well as text and audio posts of my own, like this one. Every week while Jeff is away, I've been going back through J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. This week, I'm going to be covering the final two chapters in Book 3 of The Lord of the Rings. Those chapters are The Voice of Saruman and The Palantir. We have reached the climax of Book 3, the showdown with Saruman, the villain behind all the book's injustices, from the destruction of Fangorn to the corruption of Theoden, the death of Boromir at Amonhen to the death of Hama at Helm's Deep. We've been waiting to see him directly on the page since Gandalf revealed his betrayal at Rivendell, and Tolkien delivers beyond our expectations. It's a perfectly paced and dramatically potent dialogue scene, digging deep into not only Saruman's character, but other characters in terms of how they react to him. Right from the start of the chapter, the Dark Rock of Orthanc is looming over us with its many windows. We can't see Saruman yet, but he's watching us, draining away the feeling of camaraderie from the previous chapter. The cleansing waters unleashed by the Ents have drained away too, leaving a layer of slime over the ruins Saruman made of Isengard. Even the ruins are dangerous, Merry says. If they're not careful, a loose slab will send them tumbling down into a pit. This represents how Saruman remains a threat, even in defeat, as Gandalf tells everyone. He's going to confront Saruman. Anyone who comes with him should beware. Pippin wonders why. Will Saruman shoot fire from his fingers like a wizard in the songs? Nothing so outlandish, nothing so visual. Gandalf says that Saruman's primary power is his voice. A more subtle, but equally dangerous power, as we'll see. Gimli wants to come just to compare Saruman to Gandalf, as the latter foreshadowed back in Fangorn Forest. But Gandalf reminds them that wizards only show mortals what they want them to see. Saruman could look exactly like Gandalf if he so chose. Like his voice, it's all part of the act. The mortals have to be wise to see through him, and the same goes for the reader. Aragorn gave us a similar warning in the previous chapter. You simply are not safe around Saruman, unless you're on his level, which very few are. Gandalf is, Aragorn is. Theoden comes with them up the steps of Orthanc, with Aemir's support. He would look upon his foe, and besides, as he says, I am old, and do not fear peril anymore, making peace with mortality. Legolas and Gimli come as well to represent their kindred as they were in the fellowship. All the free peoples confronting the person who would rule them. Though Merry and Pippin, representing the hobbits, remain at the bottom of the stairs, feeling like luggage all over again. Gandalf calls for Saruman. A door opens, but the first voice we hear is Wormtongue's. He's become Saruman's vizier as he was Theoden's, but all else has changed. Wormtongue was in charge in Edoras. Here in Isengard, he's reduced to a slave, as would have happened to the men of Dunland if they'd defeated the Rohirrim for Saruman. Wormtongue's sly voice was an imitation of Saruman's. Now his voice is merely an appetizer for his master's. As with Saruman's army marching on the deep, we hear him before we see him. This is probably my favorite character introduction in the whole story, because of how it's structured and all the details put into it. Tolkien describes Saruman's voice at length, conveying exactly how it feels to hear it, the range of emotions evoked, how it changes the sound of other voices, how its power waxes and wanes, depending on what those other voices say and how Saruman responds to them. It's a representation of magic rooted in recognizable human psychology. We all know someone who can talk their way out of any corner, muddling the situation just enough to escape. That combination of charisma and cunning can be mesmerizing almost like a magic spell. Saruman makes that literal. The effect is so uncanny because nothing overtly magical is happening, no fire leaping from his fingers as Pippin imagined, but everything is different, like in a fairy tale. It's almost dreamlike. As in a dream, our heroes don't remember the specifics, the actual words the voice spoke. That seems beside the point. The point is that the voice is good, and they felt the need to agree with it, Please it, bring their own words and thoughts and actions into line with it. Even more chilling is the voice's lingering effect. For some, it faded when it was out of earshot. But for others, it remained, ever after, whispering in the back of their mind. It's like a disease, a tangible theft of your well-being. It's the essence of control. We never meet Sauron, the titular Lord of the Rings, in the Lord of the Rings. Instead, we meet a series of stand-ins for him. The main one, of course, is the ring itself, but among other characters, the closest we get to meeting the Dark Lord is right here. Specifically, this scene echoes Sauron's corruption of the Numenorians, the men who were descended from those who fought alongside the elves in Elder Days and were rewarded with long lives, extra smarts and strength, and the island of Numenor in the sea. Eventually, they sailed back to Middle-earth to kick Sauron's ass. He surrendered on the spot, but used his honeyed tongue to become advisor to the king of Numenor, preying on his arrogance, convincing him to attack and dethrone God in order to attain immortality. That did not work out, leading to the fall of Numenor and the remaining men there fleeing to Middle-earth under Elendil, Aragorn's ancestor, the guy whose blade was broken. When the men of Numenor came to the Dark Tower to accept Sauron's surrender, it must have gone just like this. Sauron using his skills of persuasion to snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. As in the minds of Moria, the difference is that this time, Gandalf is here. Right away, Tolkien compares and contrasts the two wizards. Gimli, his curiosity satisfied, sums it up perfectly. They are like and yet unlike. Both are tall old men with long beards. Both have cloaks and staffs. But there's something different. More in the way they carry themselves. The way they react to others. It reminds me of how Frodo described Aragorn when they first met. He looked foul, but seemed fair. Whereas the enemy looks fair but seems foul, and that's Saruman. His cloak gives him away, made of all colors changing as they look. He's a chameleon. He'll say anything to escape. Remember Gandalf the White's big expository monologue to the three hunters in Fangorn? He was conveying his complex thoughts as clearly and honestly as possible. Saruman works the other way around. He weaves a web of bullshit. Rather than directly insult Gandalf, he merely says that Gandalf seeks no help or counsel. He's playing on Gandalf's reputation as a stormcrow, a perpetual outsider that only seems to show up to disturb everything. Saruman then kisses up to Theoden, praising his house and his arms, calling him the mightiest king in the western lands. He has the gall to tell the king that he's beset with unwise counselors, as if Saruman didn't send an unwise counselor. He ignores his own invasion of Rohan, focusing instead on the injuries done to Isengard, for which he's willing to forgive Theoden if he listens now. The Rohirrim are riding toward ruin, Saruman says, and only he can save them. You can see why it works. Despite his outrageous omissions and exaggerations, Saruman is playing on real fears and desires. The Rohirrim think that oh, Gandalf never spoke so obsequiously to their king. Of course not, because buttering up the mortals isn't Gandalf's job. We saw how he operated in Edoras, guiding Théoden firmly but fairly in the right direction, allowing him to make the major decisions. Saruman indulges in his powers and fees on the human ego. He's right that the Rohirrim are still in grave danger, facing down the shadow in the east. Yet the image of Saruman holding a door open to the light that he puts in their heads, that's a lie. He offers them nothing but servitude. Gandalf knows this, of course, but doesn't point it out. He stands still as stone, Tolkien writes, as if waiting his turn. Again, it's the mortals themselves who must stand or fall against Saruman's temptation. We get this great call and response structure to the scene. Three defiances of Saruman that break down his composed persona until his true face emerges. First up is Gimli, who cuts to the core truth. Saruman is a bad faith actor. Nothing he says can be trusted. He flips every concept around, help to ruin, saving to slaying. Saruman subtly framed the conversation as though they were here to ask him for help. Gimli says that's not so. Saruman is in the weaker position here. He hates being reminded of that. For a moment, anger creeps into his voice, and a light flares in his eyes. Then he regains control. Saruman doesn't deny nor even confront Gimli's point. Instead, he says that Gimli is a stranger here, and this is no concern of his. Saruman does not blame him for becoming in fault, so valiant a part he has played. The same infuriating mix of evasion and flattery. Gimli's point that Saruman is unreliable is true, no matter where Gimli's from. Saruman's just trying to divide and conquer, get the Rohirrim to look upon Gimli as unreliable. We saw those latent prejudices at work when Eomer first met the three hunters. But Gimli fell in love with Rohan thanks to the caves of Helm's Deep, and it is Eomer who next rises above to speak. Saruman asks Theoden to make peace so that together they may repair their injuries, take counsel against the dark days ahead, and guarantee mutual prosperity in the future. Sounds nice. What reasonable person could refuse that? But Aemir proves himself smart, as well as strong, a worthy heir to Theoden at the end of the story. He reminds the king that Gandalf warned them about this exact scenario. Aemir says that Saruman is trapped like a wolf by hounds. He has no help to give them, and just wants to escape. Look upon his works, Aemir says. Remember Hama at Helm's Deep, and your son fallen at the fords. Saruman's actions speak louder than his words. Again, his anger surges, calling Eomer a young serpent for daring to speak the truth. Again, Saruman restores himself and dances around the point, complimenting Eomer for his valor while putting him down as a mere warrior. If you would be king, the wizard says, you must learn to choose your battles wisely. You cannot count on the Ents in the long run. And if soldiers falling in battle makes me a monster, well then all those Rohirrim kings under the flowery barrows in Edoras are monsters too. They fought wars. They also made peace with those they fought, when it was wise to do so. Who are you to judge? Once more, Saruman cuts his bullshit with just enough truth to pass it off as legitimate. The Huorns are not exactly pro-humanity, and the Rohirrim are indeed a warrior culture whose history is far from peaceful. After all, they kicked out the men who now live in Dunland. Saruman is not wrong about the nature of power in Middle-earth, but he has no interest in improving on that, no matter what he says. He just wants to be in charge of it all. That's what makes the Ents different, as Gandalf tells Treebeard later. They did not send the Huorns forth to choke out all other life and rule the planet in their name. Saruman is trying to muddy the waters, arguing that all the actions and reactions that have led them here are created equal. Not only is he trying to get around the fact that he lost his war against Rohan, he's trying to escape moral culpability for having started that war in the first place. That is more than Theoden can abide. We will have peace, he says. When you are gone, and Sauron is gone, and all your works have perished. Gimli is right, you're a liar. Eomer is right, you're only talking peace because you lost the war, a war you started. It's incredibly powerful, as Theoden cuts through the enchantment to call Saruman to account for the people of the Westfold, murdered by his servants, and for not only the death of Hama, but the mutilation of his body. Tolkien does a masterful job bringing us to this catharsis, making us hate Saruman not only for his deeds but his lies about them, making us worry that Theoden is deceived along with his men, and then bringing the wizard crashing down to earth. Theoden really captures my heart here, admitting that he thinks of himself as a lesser son of great kings. I'm past my prime, and maybe even in my prime I wasn't good enough. But I don't need help from Saruman, who's nothing more than a finger on the claw of Mordor. The king freed himself from Wormtongue, and now frees himself from Wormtongue's master. Three defiances in a row, and this the most devastating. Saruman's facade drops, and we see him as he really is. Pure arrogance and spite. A snake threatening to strike, as Tolkien describes him. Saruman delivers a Shakespearean villain monologue, mocking the house of Eorl as a barn for drunk brigands whose children roll around with the dogs. This is how the Dark Lord looks at his enemies, too. The villains of the Lord of the Rings see us as pitiful, unworthy beings, deserving of bondage, for only in servitude to them could we ever be part of anything meaningful. But, Saruman says, that was a state beyond your merit and wit. Left to our own devices, we're no better than the beasts of the field. The noose tightens around mortal men, says Saruman. The bell tolls for Theoden, and we see the truth of that at the Pelennor Fields. Saruman's personal pretensions are worthy of mockery. The ruin he represents is more serious business. Saruman turns at last to Gandalf, using his own exposed scorn for the Rohirrim to highlight his fellow wizard in contrast. Even as he unravels, Saruman still knows how to play a room. Again, divide and conquer. He says Gandalf should be ashamed to come to him in such rude company. After all, Gandalf is proud. And why not? He's powerful in his own regard. The wizards came to blows in their eagerness to persuade each other, Saruman says. He at least regrets it. At the end of the day, are they not the master race, sent here to run things for these lesser beings? Let the mortals wait on our pleasure. Come up and talk with me. No doubt this was how Sauron spoke to Saruman at first. A chill sets into the hearts of everyone watching. The spell has changed. Now they feel on the outside of that voice, like children looking in on adults, reduced in time. As when Gandalf the White first revealed himself, we're reminded that these are beings of a higher order. Even a king like Theoden fears that Gandalf will betray them. Why wouldn't he? It's inevitable that the wizards should rule them with their deep matters beyond our comprehension. What is our valor against power? What is Frodo's courage against the ring? Then Gandalf laughed, and the fantasy vanished like a puff of smoke. Tolkien is again playing masterfully with tension and release. He makes the threat feel real to show us Saruman's power. And then he shows us Gandalf shredding that power with a laugh. Because it's only a fantasy, as he says. It's only smoke and mirrors. A shadow on a wall. It's only powerful if you believe in it. Same goes for Sauron. For all their armies and fortresses and whatnot, the villains of the Lord of the Rings know that fear is their most potent weapon. They win when everyone else assumes they will inevitably win the first step in defeating them is undercutting that lofty self-image. Gandalf points out what Tolkien told us about Isengard. Everything Saruman is doing is in pitiful imitation of the Dark Lord. He's no more than a court jester mimicking the counselors, and even at the height of his power when he held Gandalf himself captive, Saruman was no more than the Jailer of Mordor. You can see a chain of influence among the antagonists. Wormtongue imitates Saruman, who imitates Sauron, Wormtongue was devastated by the fall of Isengard, and now Gandalf tells Saruman that he put too much faith in the Shadow. Wormtongue was given a chance to redeem himself at Edoras and rejected it. Same goes for Saruman here. Gandalf asks him, not commands, asks to come down, step off your literal pedestal, and join a community again. Help fix the damage you've done before it's too late. Not too late for us, but too late for you. Saruman hesitates and for a second his mask falls. Tolkien writes that the wizard is caught in anguish and doubt. His arrogance has led to isolation. He's crawling the walls of Orthanc, his fortress now a prison cell, and he is desperate to leave. But his pride won't let him come down to their level. He's blinding himself to reality, the delusional bunker mentality of a crumbling tyrant. Gandalf says that Saruman can walk away free, as long as he surrenders his staff, like Gandalf refused to do at Ederos. Saruman seizes on this as proof of Gandalf's bad faith. See, you just want to be in charge, with all the staffs, all the rings, all the crowns of Middle-earth. Just like Sauron, Saruman assumes that everyone thinks like he does. He's describing his own plan, and what's truly enraging him is that it failed. He turns away, and Gandalf pulls him back, with only his words. Suddenly, Saruman looks shrunken, powerless, old. It's a hair-raising moment, as we see that Gandalf the White's voice is far more powerful than Saruman's. As the new Gandalf said, he's Saruman as he should have been. He's been holding back throughout this scene, trying to persuade Saruman to see the light, but now he lays down the law, cutting through Saruman's bullshit with admirable clarity, a clear, cold voice that dismisses Saruman as a fool. Gandalf was gray and then white. Saruman, the chameleon, has no color now, reduced to the dinginess of his own devices. He is banished from the council. His staff is broken at Gandalf's command. Here is the magic Pippin was talking about true metaphysical power. The kind that Saruman wanted to dominate, and now he's exiled from it forever. He is defeated. Or is he? On reread, we know Saruman has a backup plan escape to the north where he's been cultivating allies. So even his unraveling, to some degree, is a performance, a mask like his voice. All Saruman takes away from this is more spite, which he will unleash on the Shire. It's this exact moment, with the Isengard plot wrapped up, that Tolkien literally tosses down the next plot point at the characters (laughs) like the golden apple of discord. It's a heavy, shining thing that immediately draws our attention. Shattering all in its path but remaining unharmed, a globe of dark crystal, with fire glimmering inside. Pippin picks it up, Gandalf takes it from him. This is a palantir, the seeing stone of Orthanc, and the way Tolkien handles it exemplifies his storytelling as a whole. The palantir is like the ring, a seductive source of power that ultimately belongs to the Dark Lord. Grima slash Wormtongue is like Smeagol slash Gollum, a comparison that has come up before and is made explicit at the end of the story. Gollum lost the ring, and a hobbit picked it up. Wormtongue threw the palantir, and a hobbit picked it up. Often does hatred hurt itself, Gandalf says. Wormtongue might have been throwing at Saruman as much as Gandalf, hating both and missing both. And this is the one thing Saruman never would have wanted him to throw away. Next we get a comedic scene with Merry and Gandalf where the hobbit calls himself a ragtag, the insult Saruman used for the hobbits. Gandalf tells Merry that, really, the hobbits were foremost in Saruman's mind. After all, he sent his Urukai to find them. This sets up the big event of the chapter, in which Sauron perceives Pippin in the Palantir. Both Sauron and Saruman, these ancient powerful beings, want control of the humble provincial hobbits. Gandalf is also an ancient powerful being, but he chooses to ground himself, saying with a laugh that all wizards should hang out with hobbits to keep them humble. If only it worked. Gandalf doesn't have time for Merry's questions. The victory over Saruman has only increased the danger from Sauron. There is some link between the two powers that Gandalf hasn't figured out. Ironically, that link will be discovered by the very hobbits that Gandalf is ignoring. Mary and Pippin felt like luggage again at Orthanc, useless side characters, along for the ride while more important people do the work. Pippin will soon seize control of his destiny again, for better or worse. If the last chapter contained some of Tolkien's best dialogue, this chapter shows off his mastery of atmosphere. The sun is sinking behind the mountains. The Ents salute our heroes as they leave Isengard, standing still like statues. The Hobbits look back as they leave. The sun still shines, but Isengard is lost in shadows, and Treebeard looks like the distant stump of an old tree, in contrast to the sunny hill where they first met. The king's party comes to the pillar of the white Hands they saw on the way in. The Ents have toppled it to the ground, the red nail on the forefinger fading to black with the sunset. The Ents see to every detail, Gandalf says, and so does Tolkien. Everything passes away, the good and the bad. Saruman has fallen, but the hobbits have left the Ents behind and soon they will part from each other as well. Treebeard has come to care deeply for Merry and Pippin, singing again the hobbits' part in his song, never to be forgotten, just like the Entwives, and once more he asks the hobbits to send word, if they see any. But they won't find the Entwives when they return to the Shire, only Saruman, getting his revenge. Gandalf asks Treebeard to keep close watch on the wizard, if only he had. As they make camp, a chill wind blows the mists away. The waxing moon shines over them, It's a transitional moment, exemplified by nature. Last year's bracken alongside the tight-curled fronds of spring. A hawthorn tree riven with age, but with buds swelling at the tip of every twig. Spring inside winter. Victory inside defeat. Change is a guarantee. The only question is what kind of change. Even the hobbits' decisions play a role in that. Tolkien focused on Merry at the start of the chapter when he was talking to Gandalf. It's a clever misdirection. Pippin is the one who's about to change the course of the story. The author does a great job slowly building up Pippin's temptation. We're not in his head at first. We see him from the outside, like Merry, wondering what's going on with him. Pippin's tossing and turning, talking resentfully about how Gandalf keeps everything hidden from them, as usual. He hasn't changed a bit. Merry disagrees, summing up for the audience how Gandalf has changed. Gandalf is kinder and harsher, happier and sadder. It seems to be connected to him taking over Saruman's role as the leader of the council. But the hobbits don't know what the council is. And anyway, Pippin doesn't actually care about that. He cares about what Gandalf is keeping hidden from him. That glass ball Wormtongue threw down that Pippin picked up. Dread sets in for the reader as we finally understand why Pippin is behaving this way and what's about to happen next. The One Ring made kindly old Bilbo Baggins irritable and paranoid. We'll see it do the same thing to Frodo. We've seen what it did to Gollum. The Palantir is doing it to Pippin. He resents Gandalf for taking it away. He resents Merry for telling him the plain truth that he can't have it and needs to go to sleep. He mutters about the moment he held it, seemingly talking to himself as Boromir was about the ring. When we finally get inside Pippin's head, we see that he's growing obsessed with the stone, the light he saw flickering in its mysterious depths. Is Pippin crossing over to the dark side? Not in the long run. Tolkien's already showing us that this temptation won't prove fatal. Pippin knows this is a bad idea, but can't resist, which is different from Boromir and Isildur's affirmative belief that the ring could be a source for good. Weakness is one thing, ambition another. Moreover, I think the reader is supposed to sympathize with Pippin's desire to take control of his life. Merry passes on the wisdom that Sam passed on from Gildor. Don't meddle in the affairs of wizards. He's right. But Pippin is also right that this entire quest has been one long meddling in the affairs of wizards. Why shouldn't they get some answers out of it? Pippin doesn't want power, he wants knowledge. And while the search for knowledge can certainly be dangerous, it's also the source of all our greatest achievements. Back to that nature imagery. It's all about balance. Gandalf's eyes glitter as Pippin approaches. The wizard seems asleep, but maybe he's just staying still as stone like at Orthanc, letting the mortals make their own decisions. Pippin is acting half against his will, Tolkien writes, pulled by the Palantir. He's caught in between, as Frodo was during his own vision at Amon Hen. When Pippin sneaks the stone out from under Gandalf's arm, it's lighter than expected, and he thinks with relief that it must not be the stone after all. But then he keeps going, putting a normal stone under Gandalf's arm and taking off with the real thing. Pippin is terrified as soon as he does it, knowing it's wrong and dangerous. He tells himself, though, that he's too scared to sneak it back. May as well take a peek. The Palantir is in his head, like the ring telling Frodo to slip it on. Tolkien describes the moon looking on, an eye like the eye of Sauron. He describes Pippin as a greedy child, messing with something he doesn't understand. This scene might remind us of Galadriel's mirror, but unlike Frodo and Sam, Pippin wasn't invited to take a look, and his vision is so terrible that Tolkien doesn't show it to us directly. We see the horrifying image of the stone catching fire from within, and then the effect it has on Pippin. Pulled in closer, his lips moving, and then he screams and falls still. Before we know the specifics, we know the core of what has happened. Pippin flew too close to the sun. Gandalf wakes Pippin up, but not before the Hobbit delivers a message, speaking in a toneless voice, not his own. Again, reduced to luggage. It is not for you, Saruman. He's speaking of himself as it, because that's how Sauron thinks of him. And Pippin just came into contact with the Dark Lord. We gradually realized that, our skin crawling as he describes, witnessing the Nazgul flying around the Dark Tower. And then, he came. We don't need to be told who he is. Sauron is so nightmarish that he can't even be named. He didn't talk. All he did was look. And Pippin could hear him, gloating, laughing at him, telling Pippin that Saruman better keep him safe. And they'll talk again soon. As with the ring, the stone brought Pippin face to face with the endgame of his temptation. The malevolent ego of pure power. All of this is terrifying in the big picture, and devastating in terms of Pippin's character. Have we just lost the war? Has he just lost his soul? The answer is no in both cases, Gandalf reassures us. The shadow of a smile returning to his face. Pippin is telling the truth, which means he didn't fall too deeply into the shadow. As usual, Sauron got in his own way. Theoden echoes Gandalf's words from earlier. Our enemies' strengths go hand in hand with their weaknesses. Oft evil will shall evil mar. The Dark Lord was so eager to get his hands on a hobbit that he didn't bother to question Pippin first. If he had, it might have been game over for our heroes. Pippin shudders at the thought. Gandalf says imagining such things is the price for meddling in the affairs of wizards. He uses that exact phrase, making me think again that... Maybe Gandalf wasn't fully asleep, maybe this was a test in some way. He forgives Pippin, just don't stick a rock under my arm again. Note the contrast with Saruman, who punished Wormtongue for throwing away that same stone. Gandalf leaves Pippin with Merry and goes to talk to the adults. Aragorn demonstrates his heroic heart by asking after Pippin. Gandalf reminds us that hobbits have amazing powers of recovery. That's what allowed Bilbo to withstand the ring. It's what allows Sam to go home at the end. Indeed, Gandalf is more worried that Pippin might recover too quickly and try to take the stone again. He offers it to Aragorn for safekeeping, but then Aragorn points out it's not Gandalf's gift to give. The Palantir is a treasure of Gondor, and so it comes to the heir of Elendil with all the rest. Gandalf is humbled by this and passes on the stone accordingly. Receive it, Lord, he says. We've been overwhelmed by his power and knowledge since his return, But now he bows before one of the mortals, because his goal is to prepare them to stand on their own in a world without wizards and dark lords. Gandalf is a counselor again, urging Aragorn to make the right decision, rather than making it for him. You've been wise and cautious so far, don't throw it away at the end of the road. In a way, Pippin helped them by peering into the Palantir. He prevented Gandalf or Aragorn from being the first to do so, and giving themselves away to Sauron. It's another parallel to the ring, The powerful can't safely take it. Only the hobbits can. Now that Sauron's eye is upon them, Gandalf says, they have to move quickly. And he doesn't know how right he is. Tolkien fools us into thinking the danger has passed, and then delivers the true crowning horror image of the chapter. A Nazgul overhead, blotting out the moon like in Pippin's vision, spreading a blind fear among the Rohirrim. It flies toward Isengard, faster than any wind. The stars fainted before it, Tolkien writes, beautifully capturing how the enemy inverts nature. Gandalf must respond, the white rider taking off as fast as the black, on Shadowfax, his own super quick steed. He scoops up Pippin and is gone. Pippin recovers quickly, like Gandalf said he would. The stone and the ring race start to seem like a dream, retreating back to the stories and songs from whence they came. Songs like the one Gandalf is singing now. A rhyme of lore, he says, a legacy from the Elder Days, something the hobbits have no doubt forgotten. Hence Pippin meddling in affairs he doesn't understand. Pippin reminds Gandalf that hobbits have their own songs, he gets the concept, he just hasn't heard this one. It's about tall ships bringing tall kings over the sea, the survivors of Numenor, the only ones to hold faith to their elf friends rather than surrender to Sauron's temptation. They came with the White Tree, a symbol of Gondor, and later Aragorn's restoration and also with seven stones to match the seven stars on their banner. These stones allowed men to see far in space and time and thought. One was placed at Orthanc when Isengard was part of those kingdoms of men. The other stones were spread throughout south and north. But the northern kingdom fell to the ringwraiths, and the southern kingdom, Gondor, has shrunk inward. Somehow Sauron must have obtained a palantir. Gandalf guesses it was the one placed in the city of Minas Ithil, which was built on the border of Mordor to stand guard, but has since fallen, again to the Ringwraiths, becoming their citadel of Minas Morgul. This is set up for its appearance in Book 4. Saruman, just like Pippin, meddled with something beyond his understanding. And while the wizard is more powerful than hobbits and thinks himself wiser, he fell into the same trap. The only difference is that Pippin snapped out of it. Saruman's will slowly surrendered to Sauron. This was his downfall, Gandalf says, the mystery solved. The great irony is that even as Saruman used Wormtongue to ensnare Theoden, he was himself ensnared. A puppet of Sauron who only thought himself a ruler in his own right. I love how Tolkien describes it. The biter bit, the hawk under the eagle's foot, the spider in a steel web. The mortals are trapped in time and by their limited perspectives, but even when the higher orders send forth their divine sight, they also end up trapped. Gandalf understands the temptation of the Seeing Stone, though he wouldn't use it to control others. He would try to look back to their creation, when the High Elves made wonders in the West before the war against Morgoth, before Numenor fell with the breaking of the world, before Gandalf was ever sent over the sea to fight and die for mortal men who will forget him. But if he used it, the Stone would bring Gandalf's gaze to the Dark Tower instead, and Sauron does not share power. If even Saruman wound up his servant, What chance do the rest of us have? What chance would Pippin have? He says he wishes he'd known all this before. He didn't know what he was doing. Oh, yes, you did, says Gandalf. Sure, you might have not known all this intricate backstory, but that's not really what matters. You knew it was wrong, and you did it anyway. That's why you did it in secret. Gandalf has only now put all this together in his mind, and even if he had figured it out immediately and warned Pippin, it wouldn't have held him back. After all, Gandalf directly warned Frodo about the Ring's influence, But that doesn't stop it from working on him. The burned hand teaches best, Gandalf says, summing up his philosophy. He's here to help the mortals learn, rather than do everything for them. Pippin says he no longer feels tempted by the stones, which is all Gandalf hoped for. Pippin of course still has a ton of questions, but his thirst for knowledge can find healthier outlets, as happens in Gondor. That's where we're headed, says Gandalf. Gondor. Shadowfax kicks into top speed. Book three closes on a haunting image. Pippin feeling as though he, Gandalf, and the horse are all made of stone, and it's the world that's flying by under their feet. It perfectly captures the core theme of the story, the passing of time. Is it the world that's changing, or us? Both at once. The road stretches out beneath our feet, but Pippin seizing the Palantir demonstrates that it's our choices that set us out on that road. Pippin describes them as feeling like stone. Gandalf also looked like stone at Orthanc, letting the mortals choose. Merry points out the irony. Pippin wanted to ride with Gandalf and got his reward despite stealing the stone. Aragorn says the Palantir could just as easily have claimed Merry. Chance and choice interweave in strange ways, with destiny always half hidden at best. All you can do is ride the tide. So every week I've been talking about how the movie adaptations of The Lord of the Rings, the ones that came out around 20 years ago, have been handling each stretch of the material. One of the major disappointments of the film trilogy is how it handled Saruman's downfall. Or rather, didn't. He's nowhere to be found in the theatrical cut of The Return of the King. Everyone reunites at Isengard at the beginning, Treebeard says he has Saruman locked up, and Gandalf says, beh, that's enough. You wonder why Gandalf and company even came to Isengard at all. This is so deflating because the movies build up Saruman even more than the books do. In The Fellowship of the Ring, the first movie, we directly see him lock up Gandalf and send out the uruk He even causes the storm in the Misty Mountains. In The Two Towers, the second movie, he gets multiple villain monologues, triumphing his rise over the world of men. He's actually far more prominent than Sauron, and then he's just gone. When he does show up in the extended edition of The Return of the King for a truncated version of this scene... The results are, if anything, worse. You can't really translate his voice to screen without making it silly. All the weighty themes are gone, it's out of place here at the beginning of a new story, and worst of all, they slip in Wormtongue killing him here, since the scouring of the Shire was never in the cards. Without that context, it loses a lot of its impact. Christopher Lee, who did such a great job performing Saruman, he definitely deserved better, and I think he was right to be annoyed about this. These are difficult books to adapt. They demand compression and shortcuts not all of them work. I still think it's weird that Pippin sees the attack on Gondor in the Palantir, and this is taken as some big revelations of Sauron's plans. Oh, he's going to attack Gondor. Well, yeah, of course he is. They're his most powerful enemies, and they're right next door. He kind of has to attack them first. Faramir already laid this out for us in the second movie, explicitly on the map. Sauron is attacking Rohan, Sauron is attacking Gondor. So this is kind of a contrivance in the third movie. But I don't want to go out on a sour note here, and there is still a lot to love, especially in the performances. Billy Boyd as Pippin is really good at the comic relief in the first two movies, when he joins the Fellowship and goes, right, where are we going? Return of the King is where he gets a chance to shine dramatically, starting with the temptation of the Palantir. He sells the addictive gleam in his eyes, the temporary relief when he gets his hands on it, and then the horror of Sauron invading his mind. When Gandalf decides to take Pippin with him, we get something I think is missing from the book a tender farewell between Merry and Pippin. They've been constant companions. They came along when no one wanted them to, became prisoners of the enemy, but then escaped and contributed to the defeat of Saruman. Now Pippin is being whisked away by the winds of fate. Dominic Monaghan as Merry makes you feel it too, crying and croaking out, I don't know what's going to happen, as he backs away, letting Pippin go. Pippin yells Merry's name one last time before Shadowfax shows us the meaning of haste. Mary climbs a watchtower to see him go, the tragic Rohirrim theme playing as he dwindles in the distance. And I just want to say, I felt the same way watching Jeff go. And while he's not coming home to his family for a while yet, which sucks, I will be as overjoyed to welcome him back to the podcast as Mary and Pippen are to see one another again. So that is going to wrap up this week's episode on The Lord of the Rings, and it's also going to wrap up my episodes on The Lord of the Rings as a whole. Now that Jeff is returning, we're going to be focusing on our week-by-week A Song of Ice and Fire podcast again, as well as doing a lot of great episodes for you as patrons. So The Lord of the Rings is going to have to go on ice, so maybe I'll return to them in the future. Maybe, and this would be great, at some point— I might start over the series with Jeff and we'll do a series of episodes on the Lord of the Rings together. But I really, I wanted to get this far. This is, we're now halfway through the book series. I thought it was a good place to leave off. I got to l- l- do a lot of my favorite scenes and I just really enjoyed doing these episodes. And I know a lot of you folks have been really enjoying listening to them as well. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so glad I was able to, to do something fun and enriching while Jeff is away. Your support really means a lot to me, and I want to give back to that as much as I possibly can. And we're going to be doing that once again now that Jeff is returning. So thank you so much for listening, and I will see you back in the Storm of Swords.